Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. With a new podcast every day of the Premier League season, this is Football Social Daily. Chelsea in control. The Blues beat Porto 2-0 in the Champions League quarterfinals last night to take charge of the tie. Mason Mount with another standout showing, but despite the away goals, is it job done yet for Thomas Tuchel, especially after the weekend's West Brom debacle? It may be half-time in the Champions League quarter-final ties, but the Europa League last day is yet to kick off. Manchester United face Granada and Arsenal face Slavia Prague this evening. How will the Premier League sides fare? And strangely, this season we can't talk about European football without mentioning West Ham United. We've been catching up with former Hammer Matt Jarvis about his career in the game, as well as what it was like to play for England. We'll be hearing from the former Wolves and Norwich City winger later on in the podcast, including how being injured can really take its toll on a footballer. That's all to come here on Football Social Daily. I'm Niall and with me today it's a warm welcome back to a big Chelsea fan and host of the Blue Day Chelsea podcast, which of course you can find on the Sports Social Podcast Network. Keith Lawrence, how are you, mate? I'm doing very well. How, how are you? I'm not too bad. Well, you did tell me just before we started recording that you've actually got a broken rib at the moment. So wishing you a speedy recovery. We'll try not to make you laugh during the show. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got our guitar playing green and white supporting Glaswegian. John Paul Hughes is here. Hello, JP. Hey, hey. How's it going? Very well, mate. We're going to be talking about Kieran Tierney a little bit later. So I look forward to hearing your views on that. But let's start with Champions League affairs. Chelsea 2, Porto 0 in the neutral venue of Sevilla last night in the Champions League. Two important away goals for Chelsea. They look like they're in control of this Champions League quarterfinal after the first leg display last night. How important was it, Keith, for you as a Blues fan that Chelsea did play well against Porto yesterday, particularly after the shambles at the weekend that was the 5-2 loss to West Brom? Well, it could have gone two ways, really. It could have been a case of players not stepping up to the plate as so to speak, and uh, yeah, let's let's just put it right. Porto are a very good side, you know. Just the fact that they've got this far in the competition, they knocked out Juventus, just sort of shows what they're capable of. But I thought last night we were 
absolutely tremendous to a man. Everyone sort of played their part. I do feel that there's still weaknesses in the squad, but players like Mason Mount, who I think has been Chelsea's player of the season, hands down, you know, there's, there's no one sort of compares mm. to him at the moment this season. Ben Chilwell, I thought was outstanding, took his goal really well. And even the entire defence, you know, Christensen and Rudiger, the fact that they were dropped against West Brom and we were diabolical on, on Saturday, yeah. they've come in, we keep a clean sheet. And I think that, that that does say a lot about sort of Chelsea at this moment in time. I don't necessarily think the tie is over, despite the fact we've got the two away goals. The fact that we can allow West Brom to score five against us, anything can happen with this Chelsea team this season. So, although Chelsea fans are happy, and you know, I'm I'm one that's very excited to see what happens between now and the end of the season. This tie is not over. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. We'll come on to it in a sec, but I thought it was interesting that you touched upon the way that Chelsea bounced back because Thomas Tuchel said that's one of the hardest things to do in football. After a big defeat like that, when you're not expecting it, 5-2 to West Brom in the relegation zone to bounce back in a huge game in the Champions League and perform. And we spoke on yesterday's podcast about the bust up at the training ground between Kepa and Tony Rudiger, but it just shows the players care. I think that was the conclusion that we came to in the end. It's not too much disarray in the camp. It's very much... They just care and they want to win. And there was a bit of an inquest after the game. But Thomas Tuchel said in his pre-match and post-match press conferences that he didn't really need to do too much investigating into the Chelsea squad, JP, because they were all keen to really make amends. That being said, they did do so last night. But I think Keith's absolutely spot on. With the Champions League and with the way that Chelsea did sort of crumble against West Brom at the weekend, Porto will still feel, even though that they've conceded two away goals to Chelsea, they'll still feel that there is a chance after what they've seen from the baggies at the weekend. Yeah, it was really interesting, wasn't it? Because um, I, I completely agree. I thought Chelsea were excellent uh, to a man. Um, as Keith says, still some issues. Uh, probably that that, that you know that that Werner uh, Havertz thing not quite firing up front for them. But um, but mm. what uh, what they showed. Um, as, as you quite say, was it was, was a tremendous resilience um, to, to bounce back from the weekend. But but you know, the the, the, the kind of is it two hands? Do you call it a shove? The, the Azpilicueta, the the potential penalty decision, um, and a couple of other little uh, a couple of other little decisions that just Chelsea get a wee bit of luck with, um, right or wrong, certainly went in their favour. And and obviously you know you can argue that, that at times you deserve that. And I don't think there's any question Chelsea Chelsea will will. will uh, the better team against a very good team, but I think there was just yeah. enough in the game last night to really prick your curiosity as to what comes next. Chelsea, you know, very heavy favourites should see this through, but they are going to face a different animal in Porto um, when uh, Taremi mm-hmm. and, and and Oliveira come back. So uh, I'm actually really looking forward to the second leg. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, considering that was the first time in 12 games that Porto had failed to register a goal in all competitions, they definitely do have goals in their side. On the whole, you know, you look at the goals, they're coming from all over the park, which is always a sign of a, of a good fluid team. Um, but Chelsea back keeping clean sheets, which is what Thomas Tuchel would have wanted. You mentioned Mason Mount, Keith. For you now, as a Chelsea fan, I mean, his goal was brilliant last night. Is he one of the first names on the team sheet for you when Thomas Tuchel's picking his lineup? Is Mount one of the first names he scribbles down, do you think? It has to be. I mean, I know under Frank, his name was pretty much the first one on the list anyway, but I know he was left out in Tuchel's first game and there was a lot of people a bit concerned that players like Mount and James might not get a look in with Tuchel, but 
uh, you know, Mount's, Mount's just performed consistently well for club and country. So I, I do suspect Mason Mount is the first name on the team sheet for Chelsea, but I would be very surprised if he's not the first name on the team sheet for England for Euro 2020. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think that, you know, England have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to those kind of attacking midfield positions. Mount, Madison, mm -hmm. Grealish, Foden, just four names off the top of my head that I can think of that will probably all be vying for a similar position. But it's consistency with Mason Mount that I find JP. I find that he very rarely has an off game or very rarely has a bad game. He always finds a way to get involved. Whereas sometimes we think about the other players that Chelsea have had over the years that are able to kind of take a game and make something happen. I think Eden Hazard is a really good example. Often people would say that, you know, he's an unbelievable player and he was for Chelsea, but sometimes he'd sort of drift through games and then you wouldn't see him until like maybe the last five minutes. But with Mason Mount, it always feels like he's involved in the game. Yeah, and, and, and it's almost as if I feel that he, he has, that there's more dimensions to his game as well. Um, he might not have, you know, some of the, uh, some of the Hollywood billing of an Eden Hazard and, and, and produced at this point in his career some of the, the, the iconic moments that, that Hazard does. But I, I agree with you. I, I think I've, 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 I've never watched Chelsea and not been impressed by Mount by what he's done. And obviously don't see half as much of them as, as, as Keith does. But uh, for me, I agree. I think he's, a, I think he's a, a, a surefire starter for England in the summer. Um, it has to be the first name in that team sheet. And there was a couple instances last night. There was even... Um, you know, it, 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 when you extend that out beyond Mount and you think about players like Chilwell and James too, when with, with the second yeah. goal yesterday, there was something I noticed um, and it was the run that James was, was making down the right-hand side as Chilwell broke down the left. And and, and what it was doing, mm. um, he really had the, the left side of the Porto team torn between a rock and a hard place because I was watching, there was two or three Porto players trying to look left, trying to look right, and James was just constantly creating this problem for them so they couldn't get across to give the cover that was required when Chilwell had broken down that left. I think they're forming a really exciting uh, uh, they're, they're forming really exciting partnerships all over the pitch at, at Chelsea at the moment. Um, as we said, there's, there's still some work to do, but I would be I would I would be hugely encouraged. I mean, you talk about consistency. I think one of the things that was interesting last night, the commentary team kept referring early on, certainly, to the doggedness and the ruggedness and and all that of, of Porto, um, which I thought was was was, was kind of dismissive of them. That there's a lot more to Porto than that. But in actual fact, mm. when you looked at the performance and you look at what's going on and the way that Chelsea bounced back from the weekend, if anybody was dogged and rugged and gritty and determined um, and calm-headed, it was them more than Porto. <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah. yeah, definitely a, a lot encouraged by. I think Mount is just going from strength to strength. Definitely Chelsea's player of the year this year. Yeah, absolutely. And Chelsea will face Liverpool or Real Madrid if they do progress. We won't find out that until next week, of course. But some fans, Keith, are starting to get slightly giddy about possibly winning the Champions League again this season, nine years after you last did it in 2012. And I remember watching the 2012 campaign and thinking that the stars just aligned. There were so many things that went wrong for Chelsea. By all accounts, they shouldn't have won the Champions League that year. Ivanovic being banned for the final and John Terry getting sent off and then Drogba giving away a penalty in the final. There were just so many moments, but the stars all aligned and it, and it came true for Chelsea. The dream was realised of winning the Champions League. Do you get similar vibes this season in a strange way that there have been problems around Stamford Bridge at times during the campaign? But in the Champions League, things are just starting to fall into place. I've got to be very, very thoughtful about what I'm going to say. <laughs> I, I, I did say at the start of my on the podcast back in September, I did feel that this season Chelsea could win something. Obviously, you know, change a manager, sort of uh, possibly changed all that. But 
I just feel, based on what I've seen the last two days of teams with Real Madrid and Liverpool, that if Chelsea do progress against Porto, we face in the semi-finals. I don't fear either side. I think Liverpool, at the moment, defensively, they're all over the place, and that showed against Real Madrid. But this Real Madrid team, they're doing okay in La Liga, but they're not a vintage Real Madrid side. There are quite a few weaknesses in that Real Madrid team, which I didn't thought I'd ever say about a Real Madrid side. So I think if you go up against Real Madrid, it, it's a toss of a coin. You know, depending on how, how you get on, you, you can beat them. Do I think it's our year? I don't know. I'm not <laughs> getting as excited as other Chelsea fans because I just feel that there could be another a few more bumps in the road. But... We could, we, I believe we can win something this season. I don't know what it could be, whether it's Champions League or FA Cup. I just feel that this season we can win something. I think that's a fair enough assessment because if you look at the other quarterfinal last night, PSG against Bayern Munich, I mean, I think Bayern oh, had 31 goodness, shots fantastic. and what a game it was, 3-2 it finished to PSG. So there are still some dangerous sides left in the last eight, let's just say. But Chelsea in cruise control against Porto with the two away goals. The home leg for Chelsea won't be played at Stamford Bridge. It will be played in Seville once again, another neutral venue, as is the case this season due to coronavirus restrictions. But Thomas Tuchel will be very happy with the way things went last night. Next up, we're going to be speaking to a former Premier League footballer, ex-West Ham United, Wolves and Norwich City winger Matt Jarvis has been speaking to us here on Football Social Daily. We'll be speaking to the former England player next. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Now, Matt Jarvis, if you're a Premier League fan, is a name you'll be familiar with. He played for West Ham United, Wolverhampton Wanderers and Norwich City in the English top flight. And he was even at one point West Ham United's record signing. Nowadays, he's playing his trade in the fifth tier of English football with Woking. It's been a really fascinating journey that he's been on. He's been speaking to our very own Jim Salverson about his career in the game. Delighted to have Matt Jarvis on the Football Social Daily podcast now. Once of Wolves, West Ham, Norwich and briefly of England as well. One England cap to your name, Matt. That's where I want to start, if that's okay, because I think there's a really interesting stat I saw about where the players who featured in the game in which you got your first England cap are now and what they're doing. So it was Fabio Capello back in 2011. So 10 years on from that now, six of the team that you played with in that game are still in the Premier League. Two are playing football in the Championship, two are abroad, and you, you're playing down in the fifth tier of English football with Woking. And I think it's a fascinating story. I wonder what, what drives a player who was a Premier League player, was a record signing for West Ham, was an England international to go down the leagues and play for a club with no disrespect to Woking, but a club that is a considerable step back from where you started. Um, yeah, good question. For me, it was all, it's all about my just my desire, my love for the game, wanting to, to get back and play football. Um, I had a, a difficult spell at Norwich after such a great start and um, 
you know, getting back from injuries. I just wanted to carry on playing and, and for the enjoyment of, of the game and, and love playing football. And it was just an opportunity that came up. Um, you know, it's local to me. It was part time. It was um, it's just something that for me, I thought at, the, at that moment, I just had a just had a daughter. So I've got two kids now. It was just the right time for me to, to just get back to enjoying playing football, enjoying myself, being close to home and and it's a fantastic club, and and as you say, you know, it's uh, it's just the drive to to play football again. Do you think that makes you a rare beast in the sport nowadays? The fact that you still have this love for the game, because an increasing amount of footballers seem to play almost begrudgingly at time and don't seem to have this passion for the game itself. And I mean, you were playing football at an era where I assume once it didn't work out at Norwich and you suffered with a few injuries there, you could have been quite comfortable hanging up your boots and never playing again. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, it, it come to a point that I was I wasn't ready to to finish playing. Um, I still wanted to play. I had a couple of options, a couple of clubs that sort of let me down a little bit, and then this just sort of uh, you know fell into place. And 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 for me, it was just the perfect combination at the at that time of at time and place. So mm. it, it just sort of happened very quickly. You know, I, as I said, I, I I wasn't sort of ready to hang up my boots. I, I felt I still could play a, you know I still could play at a high level but this was just the opportunity that came up and, and I was delighted to sign. Do you still get the same buzz walking out on the pitch for Woking as you did I mean say for example walking out at West Ham at the old Upton Park one of the great atmospheres in football I imagine that feels a little bit different but do you still get the buzz? Unfortunately there's obviously it's not been any crowds or anything no. so it's been a, it's been a real it's so difficult I know everyone's sort of suffered with it because it's that's what drives you on when you're on the pitch, when you walk out, it's the atmosphere, the crowd, the, everything that, that comes with it. So it's, it's a real disappointment to, to not have that. And when you can hear the ball echoing round everywhere, it's just not quite the same. But I still get the, you know, the, the buzz of when you're walking out ready for the game. I, you, know, you still get that. Once you lose that, I think it's, it's time to call a day, really. Going back to 2011, there was the one cap for your country. I'm a West Ham fan. I remember you signing for West Ham. And I remember thinking that there was a potential England core in that West Ham team with you on the wing and Andy Carroll up front. Do you feel like you deserve more? Do you feel like you got you deserve more of a chance as a player in the England team? Uh, obviously, I would have loved to to got more appearances. You know, it's an absolute honour to play for your country. Um, I think at the time when I got my England cap, the other players that were in my position, you know, I had like sort of um, Theo Walcott, uh, Aaron Lennon, Stuart Downing, mm. Ashley Young, James Milner. There were, these were players that were playing at, you know, right at the top of the Premier League. And so for me to, you know, I was at Wolves, we were sort of <laughs> fighting relegation, I suppose. So to be actually able to get in the squad at that point with them players that available, I, I, I felt I... Had, you know, had done extremely well. So I was obviously disappointed to not get another another chance as, as my form sort of carried on. I, th- I still felt like I was playing well. Um, and then obviously to get the move to, to West Ham was was a massive part of, you know, why I wanted to go to West Ham, to be back in the Premier League, to be playing, you know, for a fantastic club. And, and unfortunately, it just, it didn't happen for me. How did Capello handle that situation as England boss? Because he's a manager who's come under a lot of criticism for his man management. To be in the, in the squad and then out of the squad, I imagine you weren't getting phone calls to kind of reassure you that there was a route back in or anything like that at the time. No, unfortunately not. But it was just a fantastic sort of experience for me. You know, he's a manager that's done it in so many different countries, so many different teams. It's, you know, he's got a fantastic track record. It was just, for me, it was great to be able to go along and, and you know, enjoy 
the whole experience of being involved playing for your country, but also learning off the likes of him and, and all the other players that were, were there. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't get the phone call. I didn't get anything, but um, that's, that I think is part and parcel of, of being a, a professional sportsman. And, and um, you know, he, he obviously had a, a lot more, more important things to be getting on with. As we said, you signed for West Ham in 2012. You started your youth career at Millwall and obviously West Ham and Millwall have this rivalry going way back. What was that like having started your career at Millwall and it didn't quite work out for you at Millwall so then signing for West Ham was it a bit of a kind of a two fingers <laughs> to, to Millwall to go look I, I could have done it or was there a was there a little bit of conflict there? <laughs> no for me obviously you know I was at Millwall for you know, I think six seven years as a kid but you know at 16 I got told I wasn't good enough and got released so it was a little bit of like, well, you know, ever since that, I went to Gillingham and um, every time I played against Millwall, I seemed to score or we won the game. So it was just signing for West Ham was an absolutely amazing, amazing thing to do. As you said, club record signing, it was a huge club. So there wasn't really anything for me in the Millwall West Ham. I was always just, you know, I got I got let go from Millwall. <laughs> so I had nothing. So, it was, uh, yeah, it was just it was just fantastic to be able to, to sign for the Hammers. How much pressure do those two words that you mentioned there put on you as a player? That record signing tag. How difficult is it to play with that over your shoulders? Obviously, that there is, you know, any signing comes with pressure, but then to be record signing is is that added pressure. But you know, as players, we don't we don't ask for any of the how much we go for or anything like that. So it's for me, it was all about just trying to get my head down, hit the ground running, and um, you know, my last season at Wolves and my first season at West Ham. I put in the most crosses in Europe and the most successful crosses in Europe. So for me, it was a it was a great start to my career yeah. at Hammers. What do you make about what's going on at West Ham now? Because they seem to be having a storming season that no one expected. I think most fans expected us to be at the other end of the table. But here we are challenging for European football, potentially Champions League success. What do you put it down to, that success? I think it's a fan, you know, watching now, it's fantastic to see them where they are. You know, that getting European football will be such a huge bonus for the club, for the fans and everything, especially after, you know, this year when they've not been able to go, which I suppose maybe, you know, if you weigh it up, has has that had an effect on the team? I don't know. But I think David Moyes has done a superb job in, in the way he's managed the team, he's he's basically found the system that he wants to play, found the players that will work best in that system. And they're all working for each other. You can see the team spirit is is fantastic. And I think at the minute, the signings that he's made, you know, Suchek and Kufal have been outstanding. And then, you know, coming into the January, you know, Lingard's coming in and, and has been absolutely incredible. So they've made some really good tweaks to the squad and everyone is actually playing at their top level. There's not anyone that's sort of dropped off. They're all playing at a really high level, which mm. is exactly what you need. And, and that's why they are where they are in the league. You mentioned the team spirit there. I think that's a key part of the success this season for me. How important is that as a player to have that bond in the dressing room? Because I guess it's quite difficult to quantify the idea that it should affect the way you play or your ability on the pitch in any way. But it does seem to be a real vital part of successful teams. Definitely. I mean, when I was there, the squad was incredible, you know, that we were such a tight knit group. And it was like, the only way I could sort of describe it is it is if you, know, you were going to war and who would you want coming with you? And if you could look around a room and see, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, however many mm. you wanted in that change room that would come with you, you were going to win the game. Or at least, you know, you were going to have a, a fighting chance because 
if you made a mistake, you always had your mate that was going to try and back you up, that were trying to get you out of jail. And then you were all pushing in the right direction. And to have that off the pitch, as well as around the training ground in training, it makes a huge difference. You don't want to be going into training going, oh, I don't really like any of these. And, you know, but on a match day, you're like, yeah, high five. And it doesn't work like that. To, to be a, to a close knit group is, is, a, is a fantastic positive. And, and as you said, it's, it's made a massive difference for, for the team's position this year. From your time at West Ham, it was a move to Norwich, as you mentioned, didn't quite work out. You were hampered by injury there. How difficult is it to deal with long-term injuries as a player that's stopping you do the thing that you love doing? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was the, it was, it's the hardest sort of few years of my life, let alone football career. You know, I, I, at the time, you know, everything when I went to Norwich was amazing. I started, I scored my debut, scored in my second game. We were flying as a team. And then, you know, got a knee injury, had surgery, got come back, had ankle injury had surgery, come back, had IT ban, had surgery. It was just, it was an absolute disaster. And it wasn't for the lack of, you know, I was in every single day working hard. Mm. That's, that's the, that's the demoralizing sort of situation that you, you're in every day, you're working harder, you're in the gym or wherever you are, but you look out onto the training pitch and all you can see is all the lads training. And then you go to the game on a Saturday and you're watching and, and I hated that. I hated watching when I couldn't be involved because you always want to help the team. And, and from where I was, I couldn't do anything. So it was, it was really difficult. And obviously being in pain was... <laughs> was extremely extremely tough and you know my, my wife and I we just had our firstborn um so she was sort of back down south with him quite a lot so I was sort of up there a lot of the time on my own which again was was difficult and to be injured and to not be playing and, and have all of that going on is it's extremely hard so mentally and physically it was it's, it's, it's very difficult I had very good friends and family around me um at the time I, su- I suppose, if you say lucky, that I had um, Louis Thompson, who was, um, he done his, he ruptured his Achilles twice, actually. And so he was a long-term injury with me. So we would be able to sort of work together in the gym. And um, yeah, if we were having a tough day, one of us, the other one would try and pick ourselves mm. up. So it was, it was quite good that way. Do you think you get enough support or do you think players in general get enough support when they're going through injuries, when they're out of the team and they're not spending their week in, week out with their teammates? They may be alone in treatment rooms. Do you think there is enough support mentally? I mean, physically, I guess there is support, but mentally, is is it there? I think I think nowadays there's there's so much that there is available. Not saying that players would use it, maybe. Um, you know, you all think you can handle it yourselves and, it, and it's fine, but there is support around. And like I said, I was I was lucky enough that other players that were in and around injured at the time that would be able to help me, uh, help each other, sort of get through different bits. And and you've all obviously got your hopefully you've got a good friends and family around you that, that can pull you through. Matt, it's really nice to speak to you. I think I can hear you talk with an absolute love of the game, which is always good to hear from pros. If you could take one moment from your career, one second and kind of bottle it and take that away from you forevermore, which bit would it be? To be honest, there's loads, but I don't think you can get, like everyone's childhood dream is to play for their country. And and for me, I can still, every single moment I can feel is that me coming on the pitch and just being like, I've sort of done it. I've made my dream come true. I've played for my country. Just them initial seconds when you walk on the pitch is just like, no one can take this away from me. I, I, I've done it. And then obviously you you sort of go into football mode and you you, you get into day-to-day business. But um, that initial moment is something that I'll never forget. Yeah, for 
when you close your eyes can you still see it and hear it and smell it yeah I, to be honest i can i can still feel everything I, I even remember being warming up and looking back and getting that you know wave to come back and just butterflies and sprinting back to take my shirt off get my shirt on get myself on the pitch as quickly as possible just yeah i can remember it like yesterday i know i can't believe it's 10 years but <laughs> i i can remember it like yesterday Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure. Good luck with Woking when everything resumes and gets back on the way and the fans get all back in there and stuff. Hopefully you have success there. What's next after? Have you, have you planned that far ahead? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, at the moment I'm doing you know, a bit of media work, a bit of punditry, and, and I'm really enjoying that. Uh, hopefully, you know, uh, doing some more podcasts and, and bits and pieces. So that, that would be something that I would like to sort of get myself into. So, yeah, that would be something to, to carry on with. Uh, thank you very much for your time on Football Social Daily. Thank you very much. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily, your daily Premier League podcast brought to you by Sport Social. Really interesting chat there with Matt Jarvis about what it's like to play for England and the pressure of being a record signing and how he thinks West Ham United are going to do this season. Really appreciate the time that Matt gave us as well to speak with Jim. Don't forget that there's plenty more stories with some other characters in the game on our Football Stories podcast, which you can find on the Sports Social Podcast Network. Jim's been chatting to a range of people from all different fields of expertise in the game, from physios to scouts to financial experts. You can find it all on the Sports Social Podcast Network. Just search for Football Stories wherever you get your podcasts. The Sports Social Podcast Network is live now to check out more information and possibly even host your podcast on our platform, which has zero hosting fees. Check out podcast.sport-social.co.uk. Time now to talk, though, about the Europa League because there are two quarterfinals this evening involving Premier League sides. We'll start with Granada against Manchester United. United away in Spain. And this is one of the biggest games, JP, in the history of Granada as a football club. They've even, I think, produced some commemorative ticket stubs to all their season ticket holders for a game that obviously normally they would have been able to attend Due to the current circumstances, they won't be able to. But due to the fact this is against Manchester United, one of the giants of the English game, one of the giants of world football, Granada will be even more motivated to win this, I think. Absolutely, man. And every time you mention their name in my head, I hear the Coronation Street theme, um, especially because they're playing Manchester <laughs> United. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, um, what, a, what, a, what a, a brilliant uh, occasion for them. I, I, again, as always, as we've mentioned so many times, it's a shame when when uh, clubs like this uh, reach this level and uh, and their people aren't there in the stadium to enjoy it. So that's certainly a, a little bit of a dampener for them. But I think, what did they finish? Seventh in La Liga last year to qualify for the Europa mm. League. They're currently seven, sitting about ninth. Um, so you would certainly expect United to uh, to deal with this uh, fairly comfortably. Um, but as you quite rightly said, you're, you're up against an incredibly motivated opponent. Um, when you get into these, you know, I think one of the things, even when we look at the Champions League as well, history matters. You know, when you've been over the course before and you get into these stages of the tournaments and that experience, and even if it's a different team or a different manager, uh, that, that that mindset and that, that that psychology 
embeds into the DNA of the club, you know, when you borrow that course. So it can get a wee bit mm. much for them. We don't uh, predict any, any real upsets here. United should take care of this, but what, what a brilliant occasion for them. I don't mean that to patronise in any way, shape or form. It would be brilliant to see them uh, cause a wee bit of an upset tonight and really um, and really force United into, into doing something in the, in the second leg. But, um, I mean, who have they beat? Molde in Napoli, PSV. On their, on their route to, to... Their first ever European campaign, JP, and they're coming up against sides like Napoli and Manchester United. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer even said that, obviously, because he used to be the manager of Molde, he kind of paid extra interest in Granada in the last round, just in case, obviously keeping an eye on his former club. So he's not going in there blind. He has some experience of, of watching them, so he should know what to expect. Absolutely, man. No mugs. Tough game. Yeah, 100%. I mean, what a, what a European campaign for them to face Manchester United first time ever in Europe I think they've only ever won a couple of Spanish second division titles so as far as football clubs in Spain go they certainly aren't one of the big hitters great opportunity for them but you'd say Keith on the whole Manchester United should have far far too much for Granada to deal with tonight so let's just say things do go unstuck and I know there's two legs to this quarter final as there always is in Europe do you think it should be considered a real failure if they don't not just win this tie, but win the competition here on out, considering some of the teams left still in it, you'd have to suggest Manchester United are the strongest. I would say out of the entire, out of all the teams, excuse me, that are left in the competition, United are the strongest. I just want to sort of make this quick point. For me, looking at it from their point of view, Man United have to win this trophy because... If Oli is to be there for a long time and, you know, of course, the Man United fans adore him because he was a former player. If players like Rashford, it's the same sort of thing with Kane at Tottenham. If players like Rashford aren't winning the big trophies every every season, they are going to want to one day move. They are going to one day move to a big club. So United, for, for that sort of way, they have to win trophies because the longer the drought... There's going to be more pressure on the manager. There's going to be more pressure on the club's board to, you know, want to spend 200, 300 million pounds every season, every summer to try and bring in star names. This, this is this is a must-win trophy for Manchester United this season. It would be a sad indictment of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's semi-final failures, JP, if they don't even get through to a final. And I think that should be the next aim for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because. Four semi-finals now, he's been the manager of Manchester United and they haven't been able to progress to a final. Now, it's all well and good getting to finals for Manchester United and, and losing them even because that's what successful clubs do. They can't win every time. But it's become a bit of a subplot, hasn't it, for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at the helm of Manchester United that when he does get to the latter stages of a club competition, United just seem to, to ebb away. They seem to fall away. They can't seem to get the job done. If that's the case here against Granada, that will raise some serious questions about the mentality of the side, particularly in knockout competition. Yeah, I, I agree, mate. I think that I know I mentioned earlier that uh, that history and having winning and and the mentality of of, of winners uh, embeds itself into the psychology and the DNA of a club, even though uh, change happens. Um, but <laughs> it's pretty remarkable, probably, that, that, that United are still suffering a hangover from the from the Alex Ferguson days, um, where that's at, and never quite been able to pick themselves back up to those heights. So, um, uh, uh, you know. I've mentioned many times on this podcast this sort of uh, juxtaposition between these things with Oli and all these contradictions that sit there and one minute you're all for him, the other minute you think he's not got it there. But I think you're right, you know, it, 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 it's high time 
that, uh, that some silverware was was, was put on the, the Manchester United mantelpiece, and um, mm. it really looks like there are very few better chances available to them right now than this competition. Is second enough in terms of a successful season for Manchester United? You know what it's like to support a massive club in your respective country. So supporting Celtic in Scotland, you think nothing less than the league title and probably another trophy domestically is successful for Celtic, such has been their success over the last 10 years especially. Mm -hmm. I mean, from a Manchester United perspective, finishing second in the Premier League, getting closer to City and Liverpool, who were streets ahead only a couple of seasons back, that would have been a priority, that would have been an aim. But is that going to be enough this season for Manchester United and their supporters to placate them, let's just say, if they finish second but fail to pick up any other silverware? I think it probably will be, but I think that says more about uh, what the United supporters have settled for in recent times than uh, than what is any true level of achievement. But I suppose if you watch the Paddy Power advert, you'll see that Josie thinks that finishing second with Man United is a huge achievement. Um, you know that one <laughs> where he talks about all the things that were special and sometimes a special achievement doesn't get the credit it deserves and you see finishing second on the wall. Um, so, uh... <laughs> well, he said, didn't he, that was his greatest ever achievement in football was to finish second with that United squad. Absolutely, man. Um, which, if you were in that United squad, you would be very happy about that, would you? Um, but uh, I, I, I get. I, I always. I find this, and I've mentioned it before here too, that I, I find this a really crazy mindset. Being a Scotsman and up here and and having no skin in the game, so to speak, uh, in English football, um, how willing and happy clubs are just to finish a certain point in the table. Yeah. Whereas um, up here, you're, you're bred with a mentality that, 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 that uh, second is, is, is first loser, second is nothing. Um, which is ironic, considering the Scottish national team we support, but you get my point. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that, interestingly, being a Portsmouth fan, we're often having debates with uh, the lot down the road that wear red and white stripes that play in the Premier League. And, you know, they always say, well, you're going to Burton Albion away and Accrington away. You're playing terrible teams in a crap league. But actually, we've won silverware more recently than Southampton have. And you know what? The winning is done on the pitch and you actually get something to show for it when you lift a trophy up. I mean, you don't get any trophies for finishing mid-table in the Premier League five seasons in a row. I mean, I don't particularly find that entertaining or enjoyable, but, you know, everyone's got their different opinions. And uh, as you say, I never used to understand this mentality with Arsenal as well where Arsene Wenger, his remit was when they were building the Emirates because they spent so much money moving from Highbury and building the Emirates, his remit was was with a weakened squad to get into the top four. And he managed to do that. But what's the point of finishing fourth in the Premier League if you're going to get knocked out in the group stages or the last 16 every year? Like, what is the point of that? I don't understand it. Talking of Arsenal, let's mention them because they're also in Europa League quarterfinal action tonight. They take on Slavia Prague. I mean, Arsenal's last hope of anything from the season really rests on this competition, Keith. Much like Manchester United, Arsenal don't really have much else to play for. But Slavia Prague have shown that they're no mugs because they've beat Leicester and Rangers on their route to the quarterfinals so far. So by all accounts, they are a decent side. They are. They are a tough team. And this could be one of the shocks of the round, actually, if I'm being brutally honest. I don't think Arsenal players, personally, I don't think they're playing for Arteta. I think they're partly playing for themselves. I think they're partly playing for maybe moves elsewhere. Slavia Prague, you know, they they didn't just sort of get lucky against Leicester. They they beat Leicester over two legs. And yes, obviously mm. the controversy what happened with them against Rangers in the in the last round obviously is still lingering, but Slavia Prague are here for a reason and I do I do think they can beat Arsenal over two legs. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they can beat Arsenal over two legs as well. I think they've shown enough against Rangers and Leicester to, to warrant that opinion. 
However, you touched upon it there, the previous round against Rangers. We saw some rather unsightly scenes, JP. We can say everything about them on the pitch and how they're a decent side, but the morals off it have certainly been questioned with those accusations of racial abuse this season. Some fans say that they could never support another English side in Europe because of the allegiances that they have with their own clubs, etc. And they don't want to see other English sides doing well. But do you think people might be rooting for Arsenal a little bit more tonight due to those previous Slavia concerns that we've seen? Well, I think anybody with an ounce of, of, of moral integrity or a moral compass in any way, shape or form should be. Um, because uh, hopefully uh, football supporters across Europe uh, show that more than the governing body of European football has. Um, more virtue signalling, uh, mm. more uh, ineffective sanctions. I mean, one game, um, and, and listen, I, I know there's no point in getting it all, nothing's been pro, everybody saw what happened, everybody saw Kamara's reaction. If anybody didn't see it, go and look at what takes place. This isn't two players who come face to face and a challenge, go a bit nose to nose and then start squaring off. This guy comes from a distance and seeks out Kamara, goes round the back of people to get to him, then whispers in his ear and it all kicks off. You know what's happened there. And I, I think that uh, I think UEFA's reaction to it, as well as Slavia's reaction to it, is nothing short of abhorrent. It is absolutely disgusting, and it just proves that all the all the the uh, the campaigns mm. they launch, the T-shirts they put on, the banners they raise, it means nothing. And it's little wonder uh, people like Saha and the like as well say, look, you know, taking the knee means nothing to anybody more because it's just becomes this. Uh, it's, it's actions yeah. like this by UEFA and and the, pr- the comments of the president of Slavia um, when he's come out and tried to deflect it, saying this is this is a, a tactic by the, uh, by the way I can't believe I'm on a podcast defending Rangers here, right? Just let's delete this for the archives as soon as it's done. Um, <laughs> but uh, but to come out and say that and then say that it was actually this is Rangers deflecting because of the overtly physical nature of their play. It, 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 sitting watching it with, with your mouth hanging up, going, "Is this for real? Is this actually?" Is this 2021 and this is what mm. we're, we're listening to? And then he tried to mm. say it's because of racism and xenophobia um, against people from Eastern Europe. Jesus, what are we talking about here, man? It's just a veil, isn't it? All the banners, all of the ah. action, all of the social media campaigns and the T-shirts, that is all a veil. It's all organisations being seen to do the right yep. thing, not actually doing the right thing themselves. They just kind of put these things out there and go, oh, that'll do, that'll do it. That, that you know, we've done Absolutely, our bit. Absolutely, man. But I, actually, I, it goes deeper than that. Yeah. It does. It should, yeah. Honestly, the, 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 it needs to be, there needs to be a year's ban or something similar for the player and such an absolutely um, brutal financial punishment on the club that, uh, that they actually, you know, when somebody does this, they're held to account and the clubs bring in stuff to stop it happening because what's in place just now is just is just pathetic and the only thing the clubs care about is the money they're going to bring in. It is disgusting and it needs to stop and, you know, we need to make a point of this as well, which we often do on Football Social Daily, that the majority of us who speak on this podcast uh, are of a white background and we've never experienced racism. We, we never know what it's actually going to be like to to experience that and to feel that emotional pain and discomfort within but we will try our very best to make sure that that we do what we can to to commit to stamping it out of the game because it absolutely has to stop Arsenal though will be without Kieran Tierney tonight JP a player you've seen plenty of seeing as he signed at the Emirates from Celtic undoubtedly he's a very good fullback but did he spend this long injured when he was a Celtic player because he's out again tonight for Arsenal I just wondered if you could give a bit of insight on that yes sadly um one of the things you'll notice about Kieran Tierney, um, you, you might even remember, some people might remember, some, some may not, but he actually signed for Arsenal when he was still injured. 
Um, he had a hip injury that, <laughs> that he had uh, at Celtic, and I think he missed. Um, I, I looked this up just to get the the, the 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 stats right on it, or the figures right on it. But he, across Celtic and Arsenal during that period, he missed thirteen matches, and um, he was out for ninety three days. But but this this goes back a lot further than that. Kieran Tierney. Um, first appeared on the Celtic first team scene at the age of 17 years old he, he was on the mm. bench he was named on the bench for a, for a game against Ross County and there was a lot of buzz about him coming through from the from the youth team and all the and under 21s and all that um, the day after being on the bench he didn't get the pitch he broke his leg um, and uh, and spent a considerable amount of time out so people were very worried how he was going to come back he came back again and when he came back he looked stronger he looked more powerful he did brilliant he's had this recurring hip injury through his career um, that has mm. come back about three times to the point that he missed. Uh, there was another time where he missed almost four months with Celtic with his hip injury after the leg wow. break, and then he had the hip injury again when he signed for Arsenal. And then we know the shoulder injury put him out for about three and a half months as well. So yeah. um, it certainly was, you know. But one of the things that impresses me most about him, um, and by the way, there's a big concern for Scotland with the, with the Euros in the summer as well, if this is the case. But he's, mm. uh, if 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 anybody who's interested in such a thing, look at him. Look at some footage of him uh, at Celtic versus some footage of him now at Arsenal and look at the notable difference in his physique. One of the things I love about him is how hard he works after an injury. He's, he really, really knuckles down and, and comes back bolder, bigger, stronger. He is way more physically imposing now as an individual mm. than he was in his time at Celtic. The side, just look at the size of his thighs and even his backside. They're super powerful. He's obviously worked on that a lot to try and help the hip injury. Um, and then this thing comes along as well. So he's definitely got a, 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 a history of injury, but he does also have a history and a proven track record of coming back from that injury even stronger than he was before it. Yeah, we do wish him a, a full and speedy recovery, but I just wonder whether he'll always be one of those players, Keith, who never fulfills his potential because of the injuries. And it's so sad to even say that to someone so talented and with so much of their career ahead of them. But, you know, I think back to the 90s where Darren Anderton was very similar. He was kind of a an exciting midfield player who's, who sprung onto the scene at Portsmouth and then went to Tottenham. But his nickname was Sick Note because yeah. he was always yeah. injured all the time. And, you know, that's just a you know, an unfortunate moniker that he got for himself because of the amount of time he spent injured. Yes, and it is unfortunate for Kieran Tierney because although I'm a Chelsea fan, I do happen to like other players from other clubs and Tierney is on that list. And I think he's been one of the sort of rare shining lights for Arsenal this season when he has been playing. And it is sad because uh, just hearing JP talk about him when he was at Celtic and the amount of injuries he has sustained in his pretty much short career. You know, yes, he's he has been around for quite some time, but he's still in his mid-20s. So he's got so much left of his footballing years t- to come. And yeah, I, it is a shame. And I, I hope that players of that quality doesn't become, you know, too injury-prone whereby they're, you know, they're sort of, development stalls I mean you just look at someone like Jack Wilshere you know if Jack Wilshere didn't have the injuries that he sustained earlier on could he still be playing for England now I mean he's you know, he's only what early 30s at the moment Jack Wilshere if not that so it's very very difficult to to sort of predict but as, as you say I'm, I, I hope Kieran Tierney makes a full recovery I just tallied it up there now um, and, and do you know that since, you know, um, from the age of 17 um, taking it back a little bit there since he, he, he started making his debut in the 2016-17 season he's missed almost 83 games through injury 
So that's nearly two seasons worth of games. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, isn't it? That's unbelievable. Wow. That's unbelievable. And do you know what? I'm glad Keith brings it up as well because he mentions Wilshere, but I think about Theo Walcott and I think about other players that have come through at Arsenal. They always tend to have a lot of injuries and a lot of injuries to young players. I don't know whether that's anything to do with the training regime or even something as simple as the pitch at Arsenal or or, or whatnot, but it seems like a lot of the time it's Arsenal, JP, where these players are, are picking up these problems. It's all those Lamborghinis they're driving, mate. That's what it is. They're, 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 they're doing ligaments and knee injuries and all the rest of it. That's a big, heavy accelerator on that. I don't want to slag them off too much because I know Arsene Wenger did pretty much change the game and got rid of pie and chips and pints of bitter and brought in... Uh, pasta uh, and drinking sparkling water before games as well, which has certainly improved the game. Um, thanks very much, Keith. Thank you, JP. My name's Niall. This has been Football Social Daily. Appreciate uh, the time from Matt Jarvis as well earlier on on the podcast speaking to Jim. Don't forget, if you hit subscribe, that way you won't miss another episode of the podcast. Again, brand new shows every single day right throughout the season, including at the weekends, where we take a look ahead and a look back at all of the Premier League action that takes place over Saturday and Sunday but that's it for today's episode and we'll catch you again tomorrow on Football Social Daily Football Social Daily from Sports Social find us on Twitter at the Sports Social Sports Social